Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And it's Halloween time. Uh, two years ago in October, we did a two-parter on the history of Disney's Haunted Mansion around Halloween. And those were two of our most popular episodes of all time. And then I have to make a little true confession, which is that earlier this year, for my birthday, as a present to myself, I was thinking that I would do another Disney-related episode, because we do also get requests for those, and that seemed like a good thing. Uh, so my birthday was actually back in May, and I obviously never got around to doing that. Uh, and then, at the end of this summer, the third edition of Disney's Haunted Mansion book came out. And so my brain just kind of went, you need to do something about this. So I asked writer Jason Sorrell to come and chat with us about the book. So it made this perfect late birthday slash early Halloween present for me. So he is now the creative director for Universal Creative. But for 15 years, Jason was part of the Disney Imagineering team. So that's right. We are talking to an actual real-life Imagineer today. He's worked as a senior show writer and a show director as well. So you can see why he is the perfect person to write a book about a Disney attraction and why I, in particular, would be super excited to talk with him. First, we will hear about Jason's start at Disney, how his career developed and eventually landed him in Imagineering, and how he ended up writing a book about the Haunted Mansion. What's really fun for me, and I think for any of the hardcore Disney fans in the audience, is that as he's talking about sort of getting some of this stuff up and running and who his mentors were, he's going to be name-dropping people that you will find familiar, uh, first if you listen to our two-parter, and if you're a hardcore Disney fan. So it's very, very cool to kind of hear that those people are still mentoring other Imagineers. Yeah. And it's also a totally different take from what we talked about a couple years ago. Yeah, we're not really rehashing any of the history. We will touch back on some of the things that happened along the way that we talked about in that, but it's from definitely a different point of view. So this isn't going to be uh, rerun material. It is all new and exciting. So let's hop right in. So I am, uh, I feel insanely lucky today because I have Jason Sorrell with me to chat about, among other things, his new edition of his book about the Haunted Mansion called The Haunted Mansion, Imagineering a Disney Classic. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of your time at Disney. Uh, so you worked with Disney for a long time, though not in a continuous stretch, because if I am not mistaken, you first worked as a Jungle Cruise skipper in the college program in the 80s. Am I right? Yes, and thank you for using the word 80s. That dates us both immediately. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, actually, I was on the college program in the summer of 1989. Let's just get it out there. Uh, it's the first Bush administration. Um, yeah, it, that's when I started. And, uh, you know, to this day, it's uh, it's something I'm incredibly proud of because, as you might imagine, being a Jungle Cruise skipper is, is one, uh, not only one of the great theme park jobs, but uh, if, if you wind up spending uh, any time there uh, as a career, it's a great first job. You know, it was John Lasker's first job. You know, there's this kind of uh, lineage, and it just uh, it makes you feel good to be part of that that history. I was going to mention that that is apparently like the, the magical stepping stone since Lasseter also did it. I have a friend that did it in the college program recently. He is the son of one of my friends, and I'm waiting for the great things to happen next. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's no, it's 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 unbelievable, and uh, you know, still as a as a nineteen year old kid, I think back on it, and well, not a nineteen year old kid now, obviously, <laughs> but when I think back on you know being nineteen years old, spending your summer in Walt Disney World, uh, and then that was the summer that uh, Pleasure Island, Disney MGM Studios, and, and Typhoon Lagoon all opened. It was just an amazing time uh, to be on the property and to have that job, you know, to boot was just unbelievable. You know, because I had you, we'd all in addition to growing up with the attraction, we'd all seen that iconic imagery from the Sunday night show. And, and all of a sudden I was like, there I was 19 years old, you know, pulling out the gun to fire at the hippo when you could still pull out the gun and fire at the hippo. Uh, and just all of those iconic images, you know, pulling out of the temple into the sacred bathing pool of the Indian. It was just a dream come true. I love that ride. Uh, and later on, you ended up working in Imagineering, which to most people sounds like an amazing dream situation as both a senior show writer and a show director. So can you talk about kind of how you ended up there and what sorts of things you did? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I actually began my career in live entertainment writing and directing, uh, which is a natural 
stepping stone into uh, creative direction and a lot of the other things that I wound up doing. Uh, I also found that it was a great transition into Imagineering specifically because growing up, uh, like a lot of Disney fans, it, that was always my dream job. But I, for the for the longest time, I never thought I could do it because I wasn't an artist, an architect, or an engineer. And uh, as I started doing creative work on the entertainment side of the house, writing and directing, I found that uh, those skills were every bit as transferable and every bit as valid as being an artist, an architect, or an engineer. So uh, that was pretty much what allowed me to to break in. So I broke in as a as a writer, and uh, you know I spent 15 years there, writing, producing, creative directing, uh, and it was an absolute dream come true the entire time I was there. Now, when it comes to something like the Haunted Mansion book, did you get tapped to write that, or was that something you had to pitch? No, that's kind of an interesting story. You know, it was the summer of 2002. Uh, we knew that uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion films were coming the following year. And it was really one of those classic situations. You know, I grew up, like a lot of us, just craving the next Disney book. You know, whether it was the Bob Thomas autobiography or The Art of Walt Disney by Christopher Finch. You know, that, but there weren't as many titles, certainly, as there are now. So I stopped. I was literally walking down the hall, and I poked my head into our vice president's office. And I just said, how would we go about pitching a book? And he just kind of shrugged, and he's, go, he's like, I don't know, ask Marty. Marty, of <laughs> course, being Marty Sklar. <laughs> so uh, I emailed Marty Sklar, um, you know, who obviously, uh, being a former writer himself, was kind of a mentor to a lot of us anyway. You know, so I, I had a relationship, and I just emailed Marty and said, um, I would really love to write a book about the Haunted Mansion, primarily because I'd really love to read a book about the Haunted Mansion. So it was a classic situation of, uh, writing it because you wanted to have it. You wanted it on your shelf and no one else was doing it. So uh, Marty uh, wrote back immediately and said, write up a book proposal. This is a great idea. And I said, great. How do I do that? <laughs> you know, I've never written a book proposal before. So I essentially uh, approached it like a treatment that we would create for an attraction, you know, just taking the uh, the audience through it step by step. I broke it up into chapters. And the other thing I should point out about the movie being on the horizon was, in my mind, that was the hook that would allow it to happen. Because at the time, I wasn't sure if the company would go for a book about the making of an attraction alone. But obviously, we know how popular movie tie-in merchandise is. So I purposely piggybacked on the upcoming film. So half or three-quarters of the book would be about the making of the attraction in all of its incarnations around the world. And then the remaining half or quarter would be about the making of the film, and then you could bring it out with the film. Uh, so anyway, I wound up writing up a full proposal uh, that went into the entire history of the attraction all over the world, and then I always wanted that middle section, the scene-by-scene scene ride through, to really get into the nitty-gritty of each scene, you know, describing narratively what happens, and then uh, going into the making of material, and then the, the last section, of course, would be about the making of the film. So I sent that off to Marty. He wrote back, had a couple of tweaks. I made some revisions. And then finally, I get an email saying, this is great. I love it. Now write a letter, a proposal letter to our publishing folks in New York. So again, I'm like, great. How do I do that? <laughs> I've, I've never done that either. So just like I treated the proposal like uh, a treatment or something we do for an attraction, I treated the uh, proposal letter like a pitch. So instead of the verbal in-person pitch that I would do for an attraction or a show, I put that all into a letter to Wendy Lefcon at Disney Editions, and uh, I got a response almost immediately. They said, this is a great idea. We love it. We're going to take it to our sales and acquisitions meeting on Wednesday, and we'll let you know. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, because this was such a whirlwind thing. So then by the end of the day, Wednesday, I get a call from Jody Revinson, who would uh, become my editor on the book, and said, I have good news and bad news. And, you know, that's always that always sends up red flags. <laughs> and she's like, the good news is we love this idea and we're going to do the book. The bad news is in order to bring it out with the film, we need the manuscript by January. And this was October. No <laughs> so problem. Like, oh. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, the good news is now I know how I'll spend my Christmas vacation. There you go. <laughs> um, so it was it was great news, uh, but it was a whirlwind. And then. Uh, as you can imagine, I, I dove into 
uh, intense research and interviews immediately. And then January turned out to be a little bit of a misnomer because January was actually when the film was going into principal photography. So I did wind up with a little extra time because I got to fly out to California, spend a lot of time on the set, you know, do all my interviews with cast and crew and all that sort of thing. And then we did wind up, you know, putting the attraction portion and the film portion together and then revising, rewriting and editing. Uh, And then I think by early spring, we had locked the manuscript and then, you know, we uh, got to go through the process of selecting all the wonderful artwork and photography, which for uh, any Disney fan inside or outside the company was a dream come true, you know, having free reign in in the Walt Walt Disney Imagineering Art Library. Uh, And that's pretty much uh, how the book came together. That's so fabulous. And I know at that point, of course, you're already very steeped in Disney culture and you had a lot of knowledge and clearly had a love for it. Uh, but where's, and you mentioned doing interviews, but where did your research on the history of it really start? Like how much did you already just have in your head versus how much did you have to go through the archives and look up? Well, I had a good deal of history already in my head. And then uh, to be honest with you, I think one of the uh, previously written books, which is a wonderful book, if you can get your hands on it, is Disneyland, The Nickel Tour by uh, Bruce Gordon and David Mumford. Uh, absolute, uh, to me, it's one of the Bibles on Disneyland. It's not only filled with amazing art and photography and postcards, but uh, they, they really have one of the definitive histories of Disneyland. And as I started reading through their Haunted Mansion section, uh, that was when I started to realize, oh, there's a lot more to this story than I'm aware of. And I thought I knew a decent amount about it. So in addition to the interviews, I went into the Walt Disney archives at the studios and go through all sorts of of folders, unearthing memos, you know, from from Dick Irvine and Ken Anderson, memos from Walt Disney to members of his staff. Uh, And that was when the real in-depth story started to emerge. And I, I became aware of the fact that the Haunted Mansion as a concept actually predates the founding of Walt Disney Imagineering. You know, it's there's that old dark house on the hill, the kind of Adams Family Mansion, you know, one of Harper Goff's first pencil sketches for uh, the, the earliest, earliest concepts of Disneyland. So it's a very old concept, and uh, that really turned me on to all of the things that I felt that I needed to investigate. And that was actually a pretty good word, because it started to feel a little bit like investigative reporting. You're reading these memos. You're reading, you know, I read all of Ken Anderson's early treatments from the late 1950s. Uh, and, and then you would do your, inter- sometimes the interview subjects would contradict each other and you had to try to, you know, because decades have passed and right. everyone has their own recollection of events. You know, so I would have to compare the memories against one, of, one another and then try to figure out what the actual story was. And that was really one of the most fun parts about it, piecing together, you know, the story like you're sitting there like Angela Lansbury or something. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I don't know that, why I went with Angela Lansbury. I could have chosen a male detective, but there it is. That's fine. You know, the heart wants what it wants, and nobody's going to judge. Exactly. I'm a matron. I'm living my truth. <laughs> uh, one of the things, the first time I read the first edition of the book, which um, uh, is kind of hilarious in that my husband bought it for me while we were on vacation in Disney World, and I sat down on the bed and just was kind of gone for hours. Where he's like, we have to get up and do a race in the morning. You have to go to sleep. I'm like, no. <laughs> But I was so uh, taken by the story of the creative differences that really emerged after Walt passed away. Uh, yes. and it, it just yes. surprised me because I think, you know, as a consumer of Disney things and a Disney fan, even when you know a lot, you kind of imagine it as this magical wonderland where everybody gets along and creativity just flows and it's all good. But in fact, no, um, I mean, I'm a creative person. My husband is creative. We certainly bicker over projects we do together. So I don't know why I would think that magically other people would not. Uh, <laughs> did that surprise you or were there any other elements of uh, the research that popped out where you went, whoa, I did not know that happened? Uh, the, the debate didn't surprise me uh, because there was an episode of Disney Family Album, an old Disney Channel TV series, which was wonderful, that uh, I grew up with. Uh, and one of the episodes that focused, there were two episodes, one focused on the Imagineers, one focused on what, what they called the Disneyland designers. And between those two episodes, I can't remember, but uh, they told the story about the great funny versus scary debate. You know, Mark Davis led the camp that felt the attraction should be uh, funnier, you know, because he thought, well, it's the Haunted Mansion, you know, kids in particular are already going to have a little trepidation 
going in. So we don't want to tip the scales and, and horrify them. And then on the other side, you have Claude Coates saying same thing. Well, it's called the Haunted Mansion. That brings with it a certain expectation. So we have to pay off on the scary part of it. And uh, when Walt was alive, uh, he was there to govern, and as we all can imagine, quickly settle those debates. Um, but I also think that, that Walt, to some extent, would use that tension to try to arrive at the best idea. And I think that is something that happened, even though he passed away uh, in the middle of development of the Haunted Mansion. Um, and then you asked about other revelations. I think the single biggest revelation for me was that Walt Disney was a lot more aware of the Haunted Mansion in individual scenes, individual gags, than we ever thought before. And I think that's because Pirates of the Caribbean has for so long been billed as the, quote, last attraction personally supervised by Walt Disney. And I actually think that's a little bit of a misnomer because there is a lot of Walt Disney in the Haunted Mansion, which came along two years after Pirates. So that actually made me feel a lot closer to the attraction, knowing how much of Walt was in it. It, it just made, made something that I already loved even more beloved. And then uh, the other surprise would, would be that uh, Ken Anderson, for me, turned out to be the unsung hero of the Haunted Mansion, because we all, for years, have heard about Mark Davis, Claude Coates, Exitensio, uh, Blaine Gibson, but Ken Anderson did so much to... Uh, determine what the outcome of the final attraction would be with some of his uh, treatments and sketches and concepts that you know date back to 1957 or so. So those were the two biggest things. The fact that there's a lot of Walt Disney in the Haunted Mansion and that we owe a lot of what we love about the Haunted Mansion to Ken Anderson. Don't you wish sometimes that you could see some of those alternate treatments like as a, a fully realized ride? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, specifically, you know, the, the one... Uh, version that famously had the headless horseman galloping through a graveyard through the window, you know, up toward the house. Uh, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow from The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad is one of my all-time favorite Disney things in any medium. So to see even a sliver of that realized in a park uh, absolutely would have been a, a dream come true. And there are all sorts of other things, even some of the spookier stuff, like, you know, because I'm, I'm a Halloween guy, horror film guy, you know, worked on Halloween Horror Nights for five years. So that's definitely my world. So uh, I would I would actually say love to see a theme park attraction, regardless of the company that does it, truly set their sights on horrifying people. You know, that's kind of my dream one day. I don't know where I would do it or what the circumstances would be, but to, to create an old dark house on a hill that is truly terrifying. I love it. One day we will go to the Jason Sorrell Park and we will all have our pants scared off. Just in case you did not know his reference to shooting the hippo on the Jungle Cruise, uh, the skippers on the boats that take the guests through the Jungle Cruise attraction used to shoot at this animatronic hippo that emerges from the water as part of the the storyline of the, the uh, attraction with this prop gun. But there was a decision made at one point that the cast members would no longer carry those props. Uh, and allegedly, I have read online that those prop guns have returned, but the hippo shooting still does not take place. So I haven't read, written that one recently to verify, but next time I'm there, which will be next month, I will check. There are also some great insights uh, there about the process of getting a book off the ground. Um, even if you're working from within a company like Disney, there are still so many hoops to jump through and so many steps, which may answer the question, why you and I just don't spontaneously write a book about our show? Yeah. yeah, and I'm also really glad that Jason brought up just how much Walt really was involved in the mansion, since it does sometimes get framed as though he really didn't get very far on that project, but he really was very, very involved. So do you want to take a second to pause for a word from one of our sponsors before we go on? I would love to. Next up, we are going to talk about why this book has needed two different updates in pretty rapid succession. And one of the great things that comes up right away in this segment is uh, the source for the inspiration of the exterior of the mansion. And if you recall uh, from listening to our two-parter on the Haunted Mansion a couple years ago, I got a detail wrong in our original podcast uh, about what that inspiration was because I was using the first edition. And now you are going to know why that was wrong and needed an update. So let's jump right back into talking with Jason. 
you just released the third edition of this book because there have been a lot of enhancements and developments related to the Haunted Mansion in the recent past that have necessitated some updates. Can you talk a little bit about the updates that made those two subsequent editions have to happen since the first came out? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think you can trace it to the fact that uh, the Disney theme parks, as, as Walt said, of Disneyland are always in a state of becoming. You know, they're always changing. They're always uh, getting plus, you know, to use an imaginary term. So almost immediately upon putting the book out, there were things that were instantly outdated. I think it was literally within weeks of publication that uh, one of the Imagineers in the Glendale office stumbled upon this catalog, uh, this book of Victorian architecture and ornamentation. And, and, and in that book, one of the Imagineers found a picture of the mansion in Baltimore that Ken Anderson used as a reference. And it's the spitting image of the Disneyland Haunted Mansion. I think it's called the Shipley Lidecker House. I don't have it in front of me, and, uh, you know, as you get older. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, they tracked down this photo and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. I just put out a book that talked about how it was influenced by Evergreen House and, you know, some of these other locations. And as it turned out, that, that wasn't untrue because Ken was influenced by a lot of the Southern plantation houses. But it was clear that this was the house. And then I was reminded as soon as I saw it of my interview with Marty Sklar, where he kind of looked at me slyly and said, well, you know, Ken just copied that house. <laughs> and uh, I kind of innocently going, oh, I've seen pictures of Evergreen House and there there's some similarities and, and there's some similarities to other mansions I've seen, but I wouldn't say he copied it. And then when I saw this picture of the Shipley Lidecker House, I'm like, mm, yeah, he copied it. <laughs> so, um, you know, things like that uh, you know, were things that that I was regrettably not able to include in the in the first edition. And uh I also, because of the quick turnaround time, felt like there was a period of development in the mid-60s around the time and, and immediately after the fair uh, that, that got a little bit short shrift. So in the first um, enhancement or uh, updated edition in 09, I got to cover the Shipley Lidecker house. And then, uh, ironically, when I was looking through that same catalog of Victorian architecture, I found another illustration that was the spitting image of the Walt Disney World Haunted Mansion. And, you know, so that was in the new edition. Because when you see that, you're like, there's no way Claude Coates wasn't influenced by that piece. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we covered the big enhancements, which, of course, were Floating Leota and, uh, you know, the the, uh, the Black Widow Bride in the Attic. And then, uh, so that was the 09 edition, which we billed as the 40th anniversary edition. And then, of course, in the subsequent years, uh, we have the Hatbox Ghost. We have an entirely new incarnation of the Haunted Mansion, Mystic Manor. Uh, and then, of course, the Walt Disney World Q enhancement and the new final scene with the uh, interactive hitchhiking ghost. So the Haunted Mansion has gotten infusions of new blood, no pun intended, over the years. And uh, <laughs> that's been the motivation for these multiple editions and the fact that people just love the attraction, which has given the book lasting life beyond what, what I think any of us would have expected. And one of the major updates that you just mentioned in the book is the new section on Mystic Manor. And this is a major departure from the Haunted House plotline that the Haunted Mansion embodies in other Magic Kingdoms. Can you talk a little yes. bit about how the culture geographically had to inform the change to a more mystic adventure theme? Yeah, absolutely. I got a lot of wonderful insight into that from Joe Lancicero, who was the, you know, the portfolio leader for the the Asia parks at the time, uh, Hong Kong Disneyland in particular, and uh, Robert Coltrane, who's uh, a creative director uh, at WDI. Uh, and he's one of the unsung heroes of, of present day WDI. And, and I think he's uh, our modern day answer to Claude Coates. I've been in meetings with him where he's just a genius at layout. You know, th this guy can sit down and, you know, take the ideas and, sto and story that you've been playing around with for an attraction. And sometimes it seems within minutes, put it in a show box in a way that, that makes perfect sense and works logistically, you know, with the footprint you have to work with. And both of those guys spoke of how initially the park said, oh, well, you know, uh, Hong Kong Disneyland was ready for expansion. It needed additional attractions. And one of the comments from management was, oh, well, why don't we do the Haunted Mansion? And when they got into it, they realized that the Chinese view of ghosts and the afterlife was very different from our Western views of it. And it's even very, very different from the, the Japanese view of it, which, uh, you know, they view it more in the realm of, of fables and fairy tales, which is why it's in fantasy land. 
in Tokyo. So they knew they couldn't, uh, the, the, what they said was the swinging graveyard jamboree just wasn't going to fly with the Chinese audience. And that's what tipped them more toward, uh, toward this idea of mystical objects that kind of bring the house to life around you. It, so it's not ghosts per se, it's, it's otherworldly forces, but it's definitely uh, something that's more accessible uh, to the Chinese audience. And that's what motivated that change. And that attraction has a really cool trackless system versus like the dune buggies that those of us who grew up in the U.S. going to the U.S. parks are used to. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the trackless system is something that's kind of uh, swept the industry a little bit because it's a it's a new way to tell stories. And it seemed like a perfect match for the Mystic Manor story with, uh, you know, the, the title character, Mystic. You know, he came up with this invention, this contraption that you could tour his house and his collections with. And, you know, the other thing to bear in mind, and this is something uh, Robert and, and, and company took full advantage of with the ride system, was you, you want to use it for what it's capable of, which is uh, you depart from the linear path of an Omnimover and you can kind of split guests up so that you, uh, you could have as many, say, as four vehicles in one show space having a different experience which again makes the uh, attraction repeatable. It's a variable experience because, you know, you never know quite sure where your particular vehicle is going to go. Uh, and it's perfect for something like the Mystic Manor storyline where, you know, things get out of control pretty quickly and it just, it supports the story you're telling. So like anything in film, television, and, and what we do in theme park design, you want to use the tool to tell the story and not just use it for its own sake. And, uh, I think they, they captured that perfectly with Mystic Manor. They use the trackless system the way it's meant to be used. And another big enhancement that's happened in fairly recent years, which you also referenced a little bit earlier, is that amazing interactive queue at the uh, Walt Disney World Haunted Mansion, which has new mausoleums and there's new statuary and really fun ways for guests to engage with the haunts and like the Dread family, which I never noticed until I read this new edition of your book about the murder clues that are on those. But now I'm going to have to uh, pluck that apart as I go. And <laughs> you mentioned in the book, how delicately and carefully those kinds of updates have to be handled. So what is the process for ensuring that those new elements are integrated in a way that feels natural and still on theme with the existing attraction? Well, I think that goes back to something I heard John Hench say on one of those episodes of, of Disney Family Album when he was, he was gesturing to Disneyland around him. And he said, whenever we introduce something new to this system, we have to make sure that, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that it complements it and adds to it and doesn't detract from it. And uh, I think that holds true today. Uh, and especially when you're talking about something like one of the crown jewels, like Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean, you have to be really careful about how you integrate new elements. And uh, the creative director for the, the new extended queue, Pete Carcillo, is, uh, I think he's one of the most talented guys working in the business today. And uh, like the Imagineers of old, He's a true Renaissance guy. I mean, he can sketch, he can paint, he can sculpt. He was actually an apprentice to Blaine Gibson. Uh, so you have an incredible lineage here, you know, with, with Pete at the helm. Uh, and it was, um, he was the one that told me something that I thought was very interesting. He said, you have to, and I'm paraphrasing, but you have to be respectful of the heritage, obviously, but you can't be slavish to it. He felt very strongly that it was, the obligation of today's Imagineers to create new content, new characters, tell new stories, uh, illuminate uh, additional members of that 999 uh, Happy Haunt family. And that's really where that came from. And uh, the fans and, and just uh, general guests alike have really embraced that in, in, the, uh, in the graveyard. But it really opened my eyes because it's a really important point. You, you don't want to just recycle elements that people already know or be so slavish to it that you're just paying homage and not paving new ground. And uh, he felt that was really important, and, and he felt it was an important precedent to the next generation of designers that comes through, you know, that, that they should feel uh, emboldened or, uh, you know, uh, obligated almost to create new characters and... Uh, and, and set the tone for the next generation of fans that are coming through. 
And speaking of some of these new characters that we've met, so we have the Dread family, which is not their official name, but you do call them out as that in the book. But I did not know uh, that the names that are associated with the hitchhiking ghosts are not their re- like those aren't officially recognized. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I am. And this is one of where the, the truth may actually be kind of lost to the mists of time. But when I did the research for the first book, that was when I discovered that they they have no official names in the script and the spiel that that Exitensio wrote. Uh, and uh, I was always under the impression what we had always heard was that uh, Ezra, Gus, and Phineas were names that were actually generated by cast members over the years. We're not even exactly sure when or who. And then it, what wound up happening was it they became uh, accepted over time. Uh, the same thing with with Master Gracie. You know, that was just a reference to Yale Gracie that, that X put into the, the family plot, you know, as you're going into the attraction. But it became such an accepted part of the lore that when they made the Haunted Fa- Mansion film, they're like, all right, well, the master of the house has to be named Gracie because that's <laughs> what people know and expect. So I think that's what happened with, with Ezra Phineas and Gus. And now we're to the point where uh, Disney merchandise and, and other areas within the company, uh, whether they know it or not, have, have helped uh, legitimize it by actually having those names show up on, on pieces of merchandise and other things like that. And they're so beloved. I just love those guys. Um, oh, yeah. Those, the, to this day, they're my, my favorite characters in any attraction ever. I um, really love the Annie Leibovitz photo that they did with them, but I would have switched the casting on Phineas and Gus, I think. But that's oh. I agree. I agree. And it's so <laughs> yes. funny. It's like, well, you have the three of them, but you just kind of <laughs> switched a couple of them around. It, it seemed like a weird, I mean, it looks fantastic. It's a gorgeous picture, of course. But I was like, huh, I w- that's not how I would have played that. But uh, <laughs> I'm not a famous uh, super awarded photographer either. Oh, Tracy, can I tell you, I feel so vindicated that he agrees with me on the Annie Leibovitz portrait of the Hitchhiking Ghosts. Sure. (laughs) I really like the insights he shared about how they couldn't just drop the Haunted Mansion into Hong Kong Disneyland and how the local culture really wound up shaping the new version of the attraction. And it's not really surprising, I don't think, to anybody that knows much about Disney and how they operate. But it is really fascinating to hear about the extreme care that Imagineering takes when they're integrating new elements into beloved attractions. That's got to be such a fine line to walk because I know like the community gets very, very twitchy, the Disney community, about when their favorite things change. So before we get to the conclusion of this episode, let's take another moment for a word from a sponsor. Alrighty, next up, uh, we're going to get to the last segment of our interview with Jason Sorrell. And talk is going to turn to a subject that comes up a lot in our correspondence with fans, particularly this year. And that is the return of the Hatbox Ghost. And you're also going to hear what Jason's favorite part of the mansion is. Now that we're into some of the newer stuff, what are your thoughts on the, the return of Hatbox? Oh, I think that's absolutely fantastic. I actually uh, got to experience it on a business trip a couple months ago. And uh, it, I mean, especially when you consider the lore of the Hatbox Ghost over the years, to finally see him, you know, take his rightful place in the attraction was just uh, w- was just a treat. And uh, I-, I hope that spreads. I hope we see him elsewhere. But uh, for now, at least, it's, it's great to see that the Hatbox Ghost has finally come home. I think it's so gorgeously executed. It looks amazing. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's a testament to, you know, these later generations of Imagineers having such a reverence for the design work of, of Mark Davis, Claude Coates, Exitensio, Yale Gracie, Rolly Crumb, Harriet Burns, you know, the list goes on. Uh, and, and especially considering that that is an element that was generated by the first generation of Imagineers, you, you can definitely see the uh, absolute determination to get it right. Well, and listeners to our show know that I really love the Haunted Mansion and and really love Hatbox. So I probably get a photo that someone took on their vacation at least every other day where they're like, look, I saw Hatbox, (laughs) which I love. It delights me to no end. And some of them get really amazing pictures because I've never pulled it off. I mean, I got the ride stopped right in front of him at one point and I still couldn't get a good shot, but... 
<laughs> Again, I'm no Annie Leibovitz. <laughs> well, and, and cameras are so much more sophisticated uh, today. Not, you know, again, not to sound old, but growing up, going to Walt Disney World in the 70s, you still almost have that inclination. You're not supposed to be doing that. Put the camera away. Yeah, yeah we won't get into the person I almost yelled at for sitting there with their smartphone illuminated through the Haunted Mansion last time I was there. I was like, D- are you? Yeah, exactly. You're here it's and you're like not angry. even looking up? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Angry Birds couldn't wait for seven minutes, huh? Um, what are your thoughts on the the Haunted Mansion holiday overlay? Because some people love it and some people do not. Well, it's interesting because I remember seeing it the first year uh, it, it was in the show, which I believe was 2001. And uh, I was out there again on a business trip and and, and made the, the trek down to Disneyland, uh, braving the five at rush hour. But it was a short trip and I had to see it. And I remember being incredibly pleasantly surprised that that the overlay was ex- as extensive as it was. I thought, all right, there's probably going to be a couple of flaps somewhere and a picture of Jack Skellington, and there you go. Uh, but it, I was blown away by the uh, by how immersive and, and extensive a transformation it was. Uh, and then I think when they saw what they had, uh, you know, they they just uh, let loose and kept adding elements over the years, like Oogie Boogie and some of the other uh, elements that they added in subsequent years. And uh, I think, you know, sometimes I worry that if, if you're only going to get one trip to Disneyland uh, and, and that's your one shot at seeing the Haunted Mansion, if you come during that time of year, you're not going to get the traditional experience. Uh, but knowing how that local market operates and, and how Disneyland has to constantly keep things fresh uh, for, the, for the locals, um, you know, it, it makes perfect sense. But uh, I think my personal opinion on it is that the, the traditional version and Haunted Mansion Holiday, you know, comfortably coexist you know, for the year. Yeah, I love it. The first time I saw it, I don't remember what year it was. It's probably been nine or ten years ago. So it hadn't been going on for too many years. But when the Doom Buggy makes that, comes out of the attic window and makes that turn and you see those beautiful giant snow angels with the pumpkin heads, I was like moved to tears by that. It was so gorgeous. Well, it is magical, and when you think about it, uh, unless there's something out there that I'm not aware of, it's really your only chance to feel like you're immersed in the world of Tim Burton. Yes. And, and that's really the magic of the graveyard scene. I had, a, uh, I had not only the reaction you described, but when you get down to the bottom and you see a full-size animated Jack Skellington there with zero, I mean, that took my breath away because you're like, it's him, he's there, yeah. <laughs> iconic character that I've loved since 1993 and now he's alive, so to speak. Not really. <laughs> and I will say, uh, this is such a like nerdy thing, but, um, I, I, that's the one part of it that I probably prefer to the standard because that skinny dog makes me so sad every time. <laughs> every time, like literally my husband knows to like shield me if I've forgotten to turn my head. He's like, don't look at the starving dog. <laughs> don't look at the starving dog. It's like, I know you're afraid, but give your friends some ground round. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I was glad when they do the parade, uh, when they do the Halloween parades, they actually have a beautiful, very well-fed bloodhound in that role. She, she looks fabulous. Exactly. <laughs> He's fine. He's not malnourished. Right. Um, gonna, we're going to get the ASPDA in here. It's fine. <laughs> what is your favorite part of the Haunted Mansion? You know, uh, that is such a difficult question to answer. And yet it's also, uh, even as I said that, uh, an answer came to mind. It's it's two things, really. If I had to pick one, it would have to be the ballroom scene because to this day, after you know forty five plus years, uh, it is unmatched in terms of that spectacle. When you glide out onto that balcony and just take in that entire scene, it's almost overwhelming. And the fact that you know turn of the twentieth century stage magic is responsible for it still blows my mind. But that combination of that this uh, those moving figures you know the kinetics of the scene and the 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 haunting arrangement of grim grinning ghosts with the organist it to this day i never you know and this is after decades and decades never get tired of that moment when you come out of seance circle and and the ballroom scene just kind of unfolds before you it it, it takes your breath away really and then a close second is passing into that exit crypt and seeing those amazing three hitchhikers just sitting there subtly, you know, <laughs> waving their thumbs in the air. You know, and it's, again, it's because of the, the design 
of those three characters. You know, the characters that, that Mark Davis sketched, the characters that Blaine Gibson sculpted. Uh, I never get tired of that image either. It's so beautiful. I, I'm with you on the ballroom scene. I never feel like I get to look at everything. Like, I feel like I'm a little bit manic trying to glance around and see all my favorites. And I'm always like, ah, I just have to get on again. That's fine. <laughs> well, that's the magic of that attraction. And that's, uh, that's actually the secret of any great theme park design is that there's just uh, an abundance of details that make any great theme park experience repeatable. You want to come back because you know there are things you know, uh, hundreds of things that you couldn't possibly have, cast, have caught on, on one visit or two visits or three visits. You know, Pirates of the Caribbean is the same way. Uh, a lot of the Disney classics are that way. You know, you, you want to go back because the Imagineers have, have taken such great care in telling that story and crafting that experience. Uh, and as I'm sure you know, there are people in the world that are, hardcore Haunted Mansion fans. Like, they live for the mansion. I I'm, I'm, would categorize myself as borderline in that arena. But I wonder if there's, <laughs> like, a, a piece of trivia or knowledge that you like to just pull out and wow even hardcore fans with. You know what? I'm going to be 100% honest with you. That is hard, if not impossible, <laughs> especially in the age of the Internet. Yes. I, I mean, you know, there are such wonderful uh, fan websites dedicated to the mansion. Uh, and if I'm being honest, you know, anytime I go to those websites, I learn something new. Uh, and, you know, I've had conversations with fans over the years and uh, I've given presentations, talks, you know, all sorts of things. And uh, most of them I have to open by saying, I'm, I'm glad you came, guys, but I'm probably not going to tell you anything you don't already know, because that's simply the age that we live in. And I think that's a wonderful thing. You've got, um, you know, because I mentioned the tight deadline that I had for the book. And, and I knew when that first edition was published, as I alluded to, that I didn't tell the whole story. And uh, I would still be hard-pressed to, t- to say that my book is the definitive story, because it's not. Um, I don't know that you could tell it unless the Haunted Mansion, and, and God bless the person that does it, but unless the Haunted Mansion gets a 700-page Neil Gabler treatment, <laughs> you're never going to have the definitive story. But um, part of me loves that. I, I love the fact that as fans, we all get to be continually surprised over the years with new little nuggets that come up or, um, you know, something that Rolly Crump suddenly remembered and tells a story that he didn't tell before. Um, so I, I really, there is no answer to that question. I, because I don't think I can stump people. It might have been easier in the earlier days, but definitely not now. Uh, this is a weird question and you may just go, nope. Uh, did you ever get to see Phantom Manor, which is the one that's installed in France, in case any listeners didn't know, with the Vincent Price narration? No, and that's, that is one of the, the, the heartbreaking things, especially, you know, growing up as I did with Vincent Price films, uh, you know, and, and being in my late teens or early twenties when the park was in development and then under construction and then opened, the notion that we actually, they actually got Vincent Price to be the ghost host was mind blowing. Um, but I understand why they had to swap it out. But uh, that's one of those things where, you know, there's, there's a lucky segment of the audience uh, of the fandom that got to experience that uh, similar to the, the people that got to grow up with the Disneyland of the fifties and sixties, or, you know, people like us who gr- got to grow up with Walt Disney world in the seventies and early eighties with Epcot there. There are just certain kind of golden age periods. And, you know, I think you asking that question made, made me realize anew that uh, every generation seems to get their own. And right. so there's a sliver of the audience that gets to say, yep, I got to experience that. I got to hear it. I got to see Hatbox on his first day back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which I actually did quite by accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it happened uh during the Tinkerbell Half Marathon weekend, which I was already there for. And so when I realized those two were um going to happen at the same time, I was perfectly delighted. And it was very, very nice because, you know, Hatbox was in the attraction for minutes in the grand scheme of things. And yet so many people know about him and the lines for Haunted Mansion, which usually tend to hover anywhere between 20 to 45, depending on how busy the park is, suddenly were hours long. But it was so exciting yeah, to, to talk to other people in line. I didn't even mind because they were like, we're so excited for Hatbox. And I was like, how can all well, these people know about this one thing that was barely well, part of the that, ride? I think it's because the Haunted Mansion has has become legend. I think what you just said hits it right on the head. You know, one new element in the Haunted Mansion 
takes an attraction that's 45 plus years old and instantly gives it a line that is a couple hours long. To me, that that's the secret and that's the uh, that's kind of the the legacy of the haunted mansion. It's always going to be relevant. It's always going to be an evergreen story. It's always going to be there for us. I love it. And now my final question is, is Haunted Mansion your favorite attraction or do you have another? Uh, there is another. <laughs> no, I, honestly. <laughs> you get triple little, uh, points mi- for pulling out a Star yeah. Wars line there, by the way. Right. A slight mixed metaphor, but I stand by it. Um, Haunted, if I had to pick, Haunted Mansion would definitely uh, have the edge. It is closely followed, if not equaled, by Pirates of the Caribbean. To me, those are the uh, Pirates and Mansion represent, that's the twin engine that has powered the entire Disney theme park experience for me to this day. And in case people don't know, you also did a book about Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes, I did. I did a, a book on pirates. Uh, I'm still trying to lobby them for a new edition of, of that uh, to do the same thing that we did with Mansion. Uh, and then I did a book on the Disney mountains that I'm also trying to talk to them about updating with some of the new mountains that have been added. You know, the, the marketplace for, for books, specifically nonfiction titles like that, is a lot tighter uh, right. than it was in, in the years that we first did them. But I'm still out there trying, trying to make it happen. I'm also trying to lobby them for uh, uh, e-book editions of, of all of those titles so that uh, people, especially if they didn't manage to snag pirates or the, the mountains, can have access to this wonderful artwork uh, you know, that we try to fill the books with and, and some of these behind-the-scenes stories. So, uh, once again, the book is The Haunted Mansion, Imagineering a Disney Classic, and it is in its third edition, and it got a brand new cover this time around that glows in the dark, uh, <laughs> which I'm oddly excited by these things, but, uh, it's so fantastic. I just, I'm so in love with this book. Uh, well, thank you. That was the reason, that was the reason, you know, it's, uh, this book came about because it didn't exist, and, uh, uh, I and, and, uh, as you can imagine, countless others wanted to, to read it, wanted to see these images and hear these stories. It's fabulous. Uh, Jason Sorrell, thank you so much for spending time with us. I feel like we kind of hit the lottery jackpot on this one. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the kind words. It's, it's my pleasure because anytime I can uh, help tell the haunt, haunted mansion story and, and get it out there. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm a fan too. That's why the, the book exists, you know, so uh, it's just as much of a pleasure for me to talk about it as, as it is any other fan. Oh, so Tracy, I think that's my favorite interview of all time. Well, and you definitely <laughs> had it on your wish list to interview an Imagineer to be on the show. I remember uh, when you and I were interviewed about about wish lists for the show. That was your top thing. Yeah. And uh, uh, in particular, he's someone who is because he is a writer and comes at it from that point of view. He's just someone I've really admired. And I, I love that he has always been a proponent of, hey, you don't have to be an artist. You don't have to be a visual artist. You can contribute and be part of something like this through different avenues, which I really like. Uh, and we've had some really great guests along the way. But getting to geek out about my beloved Haunted Mansion with one of the people who knows it so very, very well is just a little slice of heaven. And I promise you, I had no idea <laughs> when I started this interview that he too was a Vincent Price fan when I asked about that short-lived narration that Vincent Price did for the Disneyland Paris iteration of the attraction. So, one more time, that book is The Haunted Mansion, Imagineering a Disney Classic. And I highly recommend it to everyone because it is delightful. I love it. Do you also have some listener mail? I do. This particular piece is from our listener, Heather, uh, and she sent us a lovely card, which I will talk about in a moment, and some cool pictures. And she also included a letter and says, I wanted to start by telling you that I absolutely love your podcast. I started listening when I was on maternity leave last September when my son was born, and I have been listening ever since. Uh, she talks a little bit about, you know, things she likes. I'm always a little uncomfortable reading crazy things. She says, I also wanted to thank you for helping me get back in shape. I, too, am a runner like Holly, and I believe uh, you said you run or have run too, correct, Tracy? That is correct. I'll answer for Tracy. 
Okay. Uh, after having my son, it took me a long time to get my feet back on the pavement. But with your podcast, I feel like I can step outside of mom mode for a little while and get my run in while learning something new. I sometimes even run with my son in tow and have the podcast in the stroller so he can hear it. Even though he's only a year old, I feel like he's learned so much more than kids ten times his age. I know it's strange to some to listen to history and not music while running, but it really helps my long runs go by so much better. I just got done with a ten-mile run today while learning about the Black Hole of Calcutta. And Emily Nerter. That particular episode was especially appreciated because I, too, am a female mathematician. I'm a mathematics professor at a private university, and I love hearing about my people. Did you know that we in America abbreviate mathematics differently than other English-speaking countries? I have learned this from my colleagues at different conferences over the years. We say math, whereas most people from other English-speaking countries say maths, plural. Since math is short for mathematics, it does make sense that the abbreviation would be plural as well. I always tell my students that so they correctly refer to it as maths, not math. Uh, sorry for going on so much, but I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate what you do. Please keep up the good work. More podcasts about mathematicians would be great. And then she gives us some good suggestions, which I won't read in case they end up. Uh, being on it. And she also sent us a, um, a cute picture of her and her little boy as they are out and about and one that her husband photoshopped of her son as part of a, um, 1920s skyscraper construction site, which is pretty witty. And she sent us a really, really lovely card, uh, which is the representation of the golden spiral. So Fibonacci sequence people, this card would make you happy. It's absolutely gorgeous. Thank you so much, Heather. I love, uh, that we get to hear from women mathematicians. Mathematicians after we talk about women mathematicians and just any time that we kind of touch on something that is vital to someone's day-to-day life or their livelihood and they're not like, hey, you jerks, you got it all wrong. Makes me happy. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you absolutely can. That is at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at pinterest.com slash history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and on Instagram, we are at history. If you would like to go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks, and you can type in the words Haunted Mansion in the search bar, you will get 10 classic amusement park rides, and the Haunted Mansion is one of those. If you would like to visit us on the web, our website is mistinhistory.com. We would love to see you visit. You will find show notes for all of the episodes since Tracy and I have been on the podcast. You will find an archive of every episode of all time going back to the beginning of the show and occasionally some other little goodies. Once again, you can visit us at our parent site, howstuffworks.com, and at our personal site, mistinhistory.com. We hope to see you there. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs> 